Funkateers, Bootsy here to bring the Truth and Rhythm family's attention to Funk Not Fight. Yeah, this is a call to action. We spread hope, not hate, uh, to gain satisfaction throughout our communities via the music uplifting unity. Uh, Peppermint Patty, tell us a little more. Thinker is our partner. Thinker music, that is. So please check the link that's scrolling across the bottom, click it, and submit your music. Let's all funk, funk not fight. fight. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. Brought to you by funkandstuff.net, this is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg.funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership drummer and singer Jody Sims, best known as a founding member of one of the most successful soul funk bands of the late 1970s and early 1980s, Switch. First known as a Barry White protege group called White Heat, after being signed to Motown and under the mentorship of Jermaine Jackson, Switch released four straight top 25 R&B albums and five top 25 singles. Featuring Bobby DeBarge's soaring falsetto, those hits included There'll Never Be and I Call Your Name. Other notable songs included I Want to Be Closer, Best Beat in Town, 
love over and over again. We like to party. Come on. Go on doing what you feel. Power to dance. You keep me high and just can't pull away. Switch's wonderful music continues to delight thousands of listeners today. Jody, it's so good to have you. Thanks for joining the show. Uh, good to be here. Nice to nice to be here, Scott. <laughs> where are you today, Jody? I'm in Las Vegas. Uh, that's where we make our home now, in Las Vegas, yeah. Oh, Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> How long have you been out there? Um, it's going on seven years now. We came out here and liked it and stayed. So, yeah, seven years. Okay. Well, um, been looking forward to uh, talking music with you. And I know uh, viewers and listeners are anxious to hear what you have to share. So let's uh, roll it back to uh, right. Ohio. You know, uh, that's okay. where you hail from, right? And uh, yeah. can you just tell us, um, you know, the role that music played for you early on and how you, you know, gravitated towards the drums? Well, um, my grandfather, he played with uh, the, uh, Duke Ellington, and and uh, he was a jazz uh, saxophonist, drummer, piano player. And so uh, he used to always, always sit me on his on his knee and tell me his uh, stories when I was a little, little pup there. And so I always was fascinated by music. And so there was this uh, opportunity in school when I was in the fifth grade where they were uh, – going to give uh, lessons anyone wanted to uh, join the band and uh, read music and learn music. And so I took up the drums. He bought me a drum pad and some sticks. And and I just, uh, I gravitated to the drums for that point on. So it was from my granddad, really. And yeah. did you ever, did you ever have lessons or you just kind of did it all on your own? No, I had lessons. Uh, actually, uh, when starting in fifth grade, I went all the way through. Uh, played in a high school band and and uh, yeah, I read music uh, from that point. Yes, always from the beginning. Yeah. Okay. And what were some of your you know favorite artists and and what genres of music did you really like? Well, always uh, uh, started with uh, the I love singing jazz, so Mel Torme's and and uh, the Frank Sinatra type when I was uh, young. And uh, as I got older, I gravitated to R&B and, and I love James Brown, the, the backbeat on the drums. He always had that tight snare. So I love that tight snare. So I just picked up his style, so to speak, the drummer style and the James Brown style with that tight backbeat. And so I gravitate to that. So if a song has a nice, strong backbeat, uh, then I'm there uh, all the way through, even to this day. If you got a backbeat, you got me. If, if it don't have a backbeat, it's kind of hard, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll roll with it sometimes. <laughs> but it's got to have that backbeat, that James Brown backbeat. I've always, uh, I gravitated to that. That's, yes, that's it. Yeah. Syn <laughs> syncopation, right? Yeah. 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 Um, how old were you when you first got into, you know, what you would consider a real band where you actually started, you know, playing in front of people? Um, 17, it was 17. We, uh, we got a little group together. It was called the gifts. And, uh, we, we only lasted for a minute. Cause then we, we changed it over to TNT flashers, but the gifts, we had a little, a little, uh, a job down there in, uh, what was that? Fallensby. And so we went down to our first gig and we didn't have transportation to get there. My, my dad was working. So he had a, 
extra car. And uh, so uh, let's say we borrowed his car because <laughs> we had to get down to the gig and we didn't have no transportation. So we, we took his car and um, it broke down coming back. So <laughs> that was the very first gig I ever had. The car, my dad's car broke down, overheated. <laughs> we had to put the call in and because uh, he was working and uh, he got off work. And uh, just right around that time, he got off work at work three to 11 is at that time. And uh, he had to come down there and, and get us. And uh, <laughs> uh, they didn't really get on me too much. It's uh, surprising now I look back on it, but it was a very scary experience. But the very first gig I had, that was it. <laughs> wow. 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 It, 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 didn't, it didn't discourage you, though. So that was good. <laughs> no. <Nah. laughs> so that was the beginning right there, the very first. We liked it. We actually didn't even play inside. It was on a sidewalk. It was a grand opening of a store, and we played on the sidewalk. Still played. <laughs> it was still fun. <laughs> yeah. So you're doing a bunch of cover <laughs> tunes, I'm guessing? Yes. Yes, all cover tunes. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. yeah. and were you mostly uh, playing R&B, or were you playing a, like a repertoire of like some pop, too, or what? Oh yeah, we we uh, well we started out kind of playing um, some uh, I would say R and B, but we always gravitated as the uh, the flashers. It was the TNT flashers. We traveled around the tri state there in Ohio. Um, we had all types of genre. We played a lot of uh, like Rita Franklin's, the Carpenters, uh, um, and uh, Neil Sedaka. We even did Dinah Ross songs. So we. We kind of like was in the middle of the road. And I think that's why people liked us because it was always that harmony. We always sang a lot of harmonies. And he liked it. Other than James <laughs> Brown, were there were there any um, uh, groups around at the time that you were sort of aspiring to become? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Part of me, Funkadelic. Um, Love them. Uh, and reason because we played with them once, uh, like on stage, we shared a stage, we played with them. And so once I saw them and they were real crazy, I had the, the diapers on and uh, just real, real crazy. Uh, but I kind of, I kind of uh, ducked to that and then war for sure. And uh, I like that group as well. So yeah, those, it was pretty much that. And then Stevie wonder later on, but those were the groups. Uh, Part of my funkadelic was, that was the one right there. <laughs> they were crazy. And you got that atomic dog on your shirt. It's the anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> um what uh what year would you say that was that you saw Parliament Funkadelic first time? Uh that was probably about 72, 71, 72. Well actually because they were before that they were Parliament, they uh yeah it was about uh, maybe 70 when I first saw them. Yeah. Around 70. Wow. Really early. So they were just raw and crazy at that time. Yeah. They were at some uh, small label and, and uh, they didn't really break out. Co uh, yeah, coincidentally, when uh, switch, when we were really, really popular, uh, we jumped up on the billboard charts. We was number two with the bullet and that flashlight part him in Funkadelic. They took the number one spot. We never did get there. And it was just a coincidence. That was the group that I liked a long time ago. So I didn't like them anymore after that. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, they were, no, they're all right. 
Yeah, well, flashlight is undeniable. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> if you have to, like, lose out to something, you know, I mean, could have been a lot worse. Why not that one? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. how did things how did things uh, progress, Jody? Uh, you know, moving toward what would eventually become, you know, white heat. Well, we uh, the TNT flashers, we always uh, always had a we always had a lot of opportunities. We had an opportunity to sign with James Brown, then uh, with Art LeBeau, and then uh, we went uh, uh, to California, and then a Phoenix. And that's when um, Bob Ralph and uh, he wanted to sign us with Barry White. And so we were we were really game for that. We was like, OK, uh, so we went to Phoenix and they were supposed to meet us in Phoenix. Uh, Barry White's crew to come to check us out. And uh, we had a couple individuals in our group, the flashers at the time that uh, they didn't want to they didn't want to uh, they didn't want to go. So we were, they went, but then we were there. They went back home to Ohio. And so now it was about three months in, Barry decided to send Bob Ralph over to check us out. We didn't even have a singer. We didn't have a keyboard uh, player, a bass player rather. And that's when uh, TC or Stanley uh, Brown, these are my two brothers that was in the group. They knew Greg Williams. And they say, well, I know this guy, you know, that maybe we can get. Now, Bob Rouse on his way to uh, Phoenix to see us. We didn't even have a group at that time because they kind of like left. So that's when we first met uh, Bobby and Gray, because Gray came along with Bobby. And that was the very first time we met them right then. And so there we just threw some songs together because I believe they got there pretty much the same day or the day after. So we didn't really have a chance to uh, really get that continuity in a group, but we did that. Keep your head to the sky. That's Bobby saying that song. And that's uh, that just sold it. So we were good. We were good at that point right there. And uh, Bob Rouse said, Oh yeah. So, so then we put some songs together. They took us to uh, California to meet Barry so we get there, we go into the this office they had on Sunset Boulevard, and we're all there, all excited, and here come Barry in there, and he was a very big and imposing guy, had rings on all his fingers and really, you know, <laughs> kind of rusty, uh, you know, <laughs> knuckles, he could have used some lotion. <laughs> but anyway, he comes in, and, and and so he sits down, we're sitting at the desk, and he sits down. And he puts his hands, fold them, and then he looks at us and looks across and says, I like you guys, but uh, if you mess with me, I'm going to F you up for life. That was the first thing he said to us. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. We're, you know. <laughs> wow. Playing the intimidation oh, game right away. First day, first, first sentence was. And it was like crazy, but it was a good experience. We were, we, uh, you know, we, we made uh, an album with him and sold about three copies. My mom bought two of them. <laughs> well, now they're valuable collectibles, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What, what was your first impressions of uh, Bobby and uh, Greg? 
Oh, I, I right away, uh, they were pretty much, um, I liked them right from the beginning because they were pretty much saving at, I thought at that time, my career, because here we had this big opportunity and we had it. So they were heaven sent as far as that was concerned. I'd pretty much, I uh, didn't, didn't even care one way or another what they were like, as long as they were a, a group. But once I hear the talent, it was, uh, it was, uh, it, it was something to behold. Bobby, right away, he sang that song, Earth, Wind, Fire, Keep Your Head to the Sky, and was crystal clear falsetta. And I was like, uh, right then, I was like, oh, my goodness, this, this guy can sing. And then Greg was, he was really, really good with uh, organizing and and um, uh, just an all-around get-along-with-everybody guy. And so he was very, very good at inserting that in. And it was just a marriage from the beginning. Uh, they didn't like me when they first met me, though, because <laughs> when we picked them up at the airport, it was in Phoenix, Arizona. And they came from Grand Rapids and they had on uh, these uh, le- big coats and scarves and leather gloves with the rabbit fur inside. And so I was making fun of them. So I found out later the two of them, they got together like, man, who's this guy, you know? <laughs> I didn't know him well enough to joke with him, but they would—they didn't like me at all at the beginning. <laughs> so, but uh, very impressed with uh, the talent uh, that they had. Very, very much so. Just love those guys. Yeah. Uh, and so that was around 1974 that you first met Barry White and got that deal. Yes, that's right. That's right. And uh, we went there, had our had our thing going there. Yeah. And uh, how did you come up with the group name? uh white heat he actually he gave us that name and so we lost our name tnt flashers because that was the name we had uh and he just gave us the name white heat uh i it just i don't know just all of a sudden we were called white heat it was like oh okay you know you know barry he just did what he you know (laughs) he said your name is white heat okay her name is white heat then (laughs) but uh that was it really yeah did did, just wanted that uh, did did he pop in at all during the recording sessions oh yeah oh yeah he popped in i got a very vivid uh uh, memory of one time when he came in there and we was working on this song and uh please don't let me go i believe that was it anyway bobby was playing on the piano and barry so bobby and barry were sitting on the same piano bench and Barry, I believe his background was drums, so he like pound on the piano. Uh, and, and really good though, but he pound on it. So he was playing, and then Bobby was there, and Bobby played his little uh, soft touch on the keyboards. But to see them, where Barry took up like this much of the, of the bench, and there was a little piece left <laughs> for Bobby. They were sitting on there together playing this uh, one of our songs, and uh, I, I just have that memory uh, of that day. Uh, of them sitting on that piano playing together uh, that song. So I wish I remember which song it was, but I just remember that, that visual. Quite a contrast. (laughs) Yeah, it was really funny, but Barry, he, he really, uh, he really, really backed us. He, he really loved us a lot. We actually played at his wedding, him and Glodine, when he had a wedding, we uh, played, uh, we did to provide the music for him and all that. So, Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, on that first uh, record, um, I got to say, Talking, you know, was a real like Sly Stone kind of funk thing. You remember that track? I do. 
I do. Stanley wrote that. I remember that song. Yeah, that was uh, actually that song. The bass player, Vince Jefferson, he played the bass because we didn't have Tommy with us at the time. And uh, and actually, after we broke up, Barry ended up getting Vince to join his uh, his band there. So uh, but yeah. Vince was the bass. I was a drums man. And we was, we was licking it down on that one. Yeah. I remember that's the, yeah, yeah that was it. Now that was syncopation right there. Yeah. That's a groove. <laughs> that's what I'm about. So, um, well, once it was done, how'd you feel about the project? You know, not considering, you know, the promotion and that kind of thing, but how'd you feel about the project? We, um, well, there's a then and there was afterwards, but then we thought, hey, this was it. And I remember um, when we was in, we had to finally had the final product and we were uh, invited to Barry's office. And then we listened to it for the first time as it was mixing all that. And uh, it, it was it was really, really sounding good. And we, I was just so into it. I thought that was awesome. But I remember Stanley. uh he did not like the mix. I remember that. And uh, he had that foresight because later you find out that, yeah, it sounded good with the big giant quad system that uh, Barry had in his office. But when you listen to it on a little radio, it just didn't cut through right. But Stanley had that foresight to see that. But I know myself personally, I thought it was great at the time. It was like that was our first real record. So I was more into that, into uh, you know, it's like green, I guess. And uh, but Stanley, he wasn't feeling it, not at all, not at mm. all. No. Did did, did all. you go? Did you go out and and perform at all under uh, White Heat? You know, on any tours or any showcases or? Well, we did a couple when we went back uh, to Ohio. Uh, we did a couple uh, gigs then uh, around the tri-state where Flashes used to play the TNT Flashes because people still knew us as that. So we just really uh, played around in that same area, but it didn't last too long. And then we eventually just uh, disbanded. Didn't take too long. And so as I understand it, um, Jody, the label basically dissolved and you guys, you know, kind of lost uh, access to your, your work or what, what, yeah. what happened there? Is that correct? Yeah, well, he had all he he owned all the masters and all that, and uh, so yeah, we just lost everything there. Even our name and our identity, I feel, because our identity was a flash that we could, we built from there. We had a huge following, like I said, in the tri-state area, uh, but it just just yeah, it just fell apart, and we lost everything. And then Vince he left and went uh, play with Barry. So there you have it, insult injury. <laughs> Did, now, did you guys take the uh, personally, or was it just all a business thing? Or, well, the one thing about the uh, uh, at that time, we didn't really have a leader, so everybody, you know, we ended up staying in a group home. That's where we we met the Upshaws, very beautiful family, and we stayed in their homes. It was like we all stayed in this house. So we practiced, we heard sometimes and things like that, but, but uh, there was no real leader and there was no real direction. Uh, and so it's just, it's just, it's one of those things where it just fell apart. I remember the day I just packed my drums and, 
and left. I remember that day. It, it just, you know, you got to have a, you got to have a leader, no matter how you look at it, you have to have a leader and some direction. And we didn't have either at that time when we went back to Ohio, Barry dropped us, dropped us by, uh, I believe it was a letter he wrote and, and, uh, and once he dropped us, it was like, okay, because he was sending a check in like every week or month or something. And, you know, when that, uh, you put that bucket down the well and you keep pulling that money, pretty soon you put it down and you pull up zero, nothing, nada. It's kind of hard to survive at that time. And uh, so that's how it ended up just dispersing. And you resurfaced as hot ice or what, what transpired there? No, the hot ice was a whole uh, a different thing. The hot ice technically was the demo that uh, Greg and myself and the guys we made to uh, get the deal with Motown. So that was just the demos that we the demos that we owned at the time that ended up being uh, hot ice with burnt lictors. He was involved in that. So it's really there was never really a group at the time hot ice. It was really uh, switch before it was switch. So we made this demo, Columbus. We go out there to California, try to get a record deal. But then we still had the masters that we didn't, that we own, but we didn't have anything to do with that at Motown. It got us a deal in Motown, but Bern Lichters, he took it and, and uh, made white heat out of it. Okay. And that only came out overseas at first and then more... Recently, it came out as Smash, or or later on, it came out as Smash in the U.S., right? Yeah. 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 Um, but on that record, I got to say, the Paul Mall Groove, uh, you know, it's a pretty good jam. Uh, anyway. <laughs> anyway. Nice oh, piece. anyway, yeah. Uh, the Paul Mall Groove, uh, Greg wrote that. That was actually the original, uh, so the be very beginning of that whole project. That was the actual... Uh, project's name and everything that grew right there so yeah that was that was it in any way that was uh the darnell wrote that i believe darnell wyrick he wrote that yeah another funk song you like that funk stuff i see oh yeah big time um <laughs> so and you know your james brown uh roots came out in please don't let uh me go which definitely was a jb style funk track yeah, that song. Uh, I even remember us when we did that song. We did a couple gigs uh, with White Heat uh, back there, and I clearly remember we were in Little Washington, Pennsylvania, and we played that song, and the people just love that song. It, I just remember that particular gig and that song that Bobby sang, and uh, the, with the flutes and uh, you know, and the backbeat and all that. Yeah. That was that's a beautiful song, actually. I love that. I still like that song. I would have loved the switch to have done that song. Hmm. But that was a, that was a really a, a. I love that song. Be a good, nice re-recording of it or something. <laughs> well, I just really wanted to bring out those tunes and those records uh, because you know people that even are familiar with Switch may not be familiar with that pre-Switch material, and it's definitely worth going to check out, especially if you. Uh, enjoy, you know, the more up-tempo and funky switch material. I think you'll definitely like this material too. Um, 
And uh, it's just fascinating too to just see, you know, your guys' development from then to what you became. Um, and um, when did the uh, what would be the you know switch one lineup um, coalesce? You know, how did the rest of the guys come together to finalize that lineup? It was a, it was a similar, it was almost identical story with uh, the Flasher to White Heat as a the uh, first class to switch because what we went to Columbus, like I said, and we made the demo. And so thus we, Greg and myself went to California to get a record deal. Right. So we go to California, get a record deal. Even when we were on a plane, we didn't even really have a name yet. We just had this demo. And, uh, but there's, the person that flew us out there, we, you know, we had to borrow some money and um, uh, flew us first class, put us in first class. And, you know, me and Gray, we was enjoying this, getting our little alcohol for free and just, you know. So we came up with the name first class. We said, okay, hey, let's, we just call us first class. Okay, that sounds good. So that's how we had that name. We've got that name on the way on the flight going to California to try to get a record deal. And we told the individual that I borrowed the money from that would just take us, we'll get us a record deal in two weeks, just a couple of weeks. We'll have a record deal. <laughs> I told, you know, and said, okay, and boom. So we go out there and um, we ran into Jermaine in the elevator as uh, everyone knows that story. Uh, and it was such a coincidence because it was the only tape we had. We had one cassette tape. And we were upstairs on the top floor in an attorney's office there trying to talk over some, some stuff. And we wouldn't give him. We say, look, we, we couldn't give him the state. That's all we got. We had to go make a copy of it. But when we get in the elevator going down, door opens up. And lo and behold, there come uh, Jermaine and Hazel. They walk in the elevator. Me and Greg look at it. like, hey, you know. And so then they get off on the fifth floor was the garage. And uh, they said hi, and then they, you know, they, the door closed. We said, hey, man, we should give them the tape. So we had to hurry up and run back uh, or get the elevator to go back up to the fifth floor to catch them. So we caught them. In fact, Jermaine was leaning over in his car looking for a cassette to play. We found that out later. And we run in there, and Greg scribbling the name, getting in contact with us. If you like us, give us a call thing and hand it to him. And we understand later, Jermaine popped it in right then. So, okay, he just popped it in. So he called us uh, the very next day. And uh, that was the day that they had their their son. And so we met them at the hospital. Or he came pick us up and took us up there. So uh, he said, we want to have a showcase. All right. So they get the place for us and they get the, we're going to have a showcase. So we called the guys up. We was actually at Jermaine's house. Me and Gray, we called the guys up that originally made that and said, hey, we got this deal with Jermaine and all this stuff. They didn't want to come. They were like, nah, man, you know, nah, I got a job and uh, 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 you know, that that stuff. So now here we are again, exact same situation we had there in Phoenix. So that's when we decided, hey, you know, you know, somebody we can get. And that's when we uh, put the call into Bobby. And uh, and Tommy, and they came in and that finished the group. And uh, there you go. So we had the group just tight enough to do the showcase. There the showcase. 
Barry Gordy comes in there with all his entourage, uh, Suzanne DePass, I remember that, Tony Jones, and all these, uh, and a lot of the producers at Motown to hear Jermaine's group. And uh, so they liked it. And, uh, and, and again, we didn't have a name at the time because we understood that there was a group on United Artists called First Class. So we already knew we didn't have a name because we couldn't use that name. But then Suzanne DePass is the one that stood up and said, man, I never seen anybody switch so much in my life because we change instruments. You know, one person playing this next song, Bobby's on the drums. I'm on the singing or Greg is playing the keyboard. Now him and Eddie's on a uh, horn. So we did all that little thing. And so that's where the name come from. Right there. Everybody was throwing names out. Hey, let's call it this. Hey, let's call us that. And so, you know. And so finally, I went to Greg. I said, Greg, listen, don't say yes. Don't say yes. Don't say nothing. I just, I want you to think about this for a minute. We should call ourselves Switch. That's what we should call it. You know, and I explained what Suzanne, just think about it. And so then we discussed it and thought, and that's where our name come from. Right there. Wow. That's, you know, I knew that story, but I never get tired of hearing it because it's just one of those classic, great music stories um, with Jermaine. <laughs> it's just uh, serendipity, you know, or fate, whatever you want to call it. And uh, when you guys went out there, when you and Greg went out, I mean, it sounds like you were confident you were going to make it. But I mean, how sure did you feel that you were going to be able to make a livelihood out of pursuing your dream of music? We were absolutely sure. We we just, there was no doubt in our mind. And maybe it was blind faith or whatever, but we just knew. Because it was, um, we, we you know, we already had our bumps and bruises and everything, but we just knew. Because that group had that something about it. We always felt that we would. And we, we really did. And uh, our confidence, or I should speak for myself, got a, l- a little shaky there for a while because after it was released is when it was like crickets because LA seemed to be the last uh, city to really pick it up. So, you know, it was it because it blew up down South, but we don't live down South. So we just maybe see a couple charts, but it was, it was like, Oh, I don't know, man. It's a, so, you know, the first thing you do, you start blaming promotion. <laughs> Yeah, it's not the music, it's to promote. They should promote it more, you know, that kind of thing. But then uh, when we went out on tours, when we realized we had something. What was uh, the first tour? tour? What was the first uh, first tour, Jody? Well, that was a promotional tour we went out on. And uh, the very first, uh, first venue we went to, uh, or uh, record shop, we should say, was at a mall there in Detroit. And that was the very first. And so we, you know, I'm sure everybody heard the story, but we didn't, we got in the limo very first time, never heard our songs and stuff in LA. Remember this now. So we go on this promotional tour to promote the music. So we're all in this limo and we're cruising on to go to the venue or where we were going to sign autographs. And we looked out there and I remember clearly Bobby looks over there and he says, Boy, well, that's what we need to be going over to where all those people are, you know. And that's when the uh, security guy comes and say, "No, that is where you're going. That those people are there for you guys." That was that was just mind blowing right there. Wow, I can only imagine. How did you feel when you first heard um, 
they'll never be on the radio. It was uh it was almost tear jerking ish kind of thing. I was actually shopping in a store and uh, uh it was over came over the loudspeaker. And your music, you can hear one little note of it, know it's yours. And it was like, what? And so I remember sitting on uh where they have uh uh you know, like a table where they have pants and stuff. I moved the pants aside and sat right there to listen to the speaker coming down. I listened to it. That's the first time I heard it. And it was just, uh, it was surreal because that's, that was something else right there. That was something. And was your, are your father still around to enjoy it with you or? Uh, it was my granddad. And uh, yes, yes, he was. So yeah. that must've put some icing on that cake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. That was my granddad. And he, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, how, how, how hands-on was Jermaine on that first record during, and during that time? Uh, he was, he was there a lot. Um, he, he was, he was there a lot hands-on he kind of let us do our thing but he was really involved a lot in the vocals because remember he did uh uh that song i want to be closer and that he wrote that song so he he was really into that and plus he was working on his own career he was work with uh stevie wonder on let's get serious album so he was working uh with that but yeah he was there very supportive very supportive he was yeah, he was like one of the guys. Hazel came down quite a few times too uh, on the sessions, but um, it was it wasn't he wasn't like uh, hoovering over us where we couldn't uh, have our creative joy juices flowing. But he was very supportive. Jermaine was awesome. I still think he's underrated. More people should hear how talented he is. Yeah, I agree. Um... In in how how quick of order did you get exposure to that incredible roster of superstars that are part of the Motown family? You know, did did you come in contact with Stevie or Diana or you know all these other greats, even a Rick James? Yeah, well, um, we didn't see Diana Ross too much. She would come in, and she was always uh, whisked through or something like that. Stevie. Um, we seen him quite a bit. Um, in fact, he come in. I, I, I'm sure you've heard of that. You might have heard of that story where he came into our session. Uh, we were doing that song, uh, Don't Take My Love Away. And if you listen to that song, Don't Take My Love Away, at the end, there's a lot of harmonies. The music pulls out and it's just the harmonies all the way through the end. And so we were done, really. And he comes in there and it was so, Stevie is so, um, uh, I, I don't know. When he comes into the room, he just, what do you call, suck the air out of the room, or it's just all the, you just look at him. You just look, this guy is a really a superstar in, in my book. And that's what I realized what a superstar is. When, they, when he walked into that room, it was like everybody's like, you know, breathtaking almost. He comes in and he introduces himself and, um, there was there was a gentleman over there in the corner over here. He wasn't in our group. He was a friend, and he was sitting there. And Stevie sits down and says, well, "Aren't you going to introduce me to 
this person over here. And that right there was real like, okay. So uh, then we did. And so you look at him, you be honestly, in my mind, I'm thinking, I wonder if he can, can he see or, you know, because after that, it was like crazy. But anyway, so we played a song and we had all these voices and all of this talent, the switch and the engineer and all that. And Stevie said, wait, wait, hold on. Somebody singing flat. And we're talking about voices of choir almost. We said, man, get out of here, man. You know, at that time we were, you know, nah, you know, we talking. No, nah, I'm serious. I'm serious. So we pulled all the faders back and had all the vocals. And we still didn't hear it. He said, no, it's there. So you start pulling it back one at a time. And lo and behold, that's devious, something else. He he heard it amidst all the drums, the keyboards, choir, everything. He heard that flat note. He did. And it was too late to re-record it. So we ducked. We just, you know how you duck it. Just pull it back a little bit so you can't really hear. You can just feel it, but not hear it. That was Stevie. Rick James, just he was just he just loved Switch and Switch loved him. He was always around a lot. He was around a lot. In fact, uh, breaking out, he was doing the la 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 la's on there. He 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 always liked that on our song. So he said, "I'm gonna put it on my song." He went there and put it on the song. <laughs> Uh, Rick was cool, man. He was really cool. <laughs> I, I think maybe what you're after with Stevie is he has an aura about him. Yes. Yes. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And that was not just that time, but others. He, it's just, just something about him, yeah. I saw him play the LA Forum in 1980, the like Hotter Than July tour. And um, even in that size of a crowd you can feel it i could feel it you know i was like man this guy is just radiating charisma <laughs> that's so true that's true yeah yeah stevie that's and he was always one of my favorites anyway so that was i guess that was even uh twice as uh delightful if you will yeah <laughs> So, Jody, what was the first tour, though, that um, Switch got out with? Who who were you uh, on a bill with? Um, we were on a bill with uh, Bar Kays. Uh, we did a lot with Bar Kays. We was on there with Zap. We did some with Cool and Gay. Because there was different, various groups in different towns. But they call it the Love Funk Tour. I remember that. And uh, so... Bar Kays and ourselves was really uh, yoked together, if you will. And there was other groups that came in and out throughout the tour, but they were the main ones that we were yoked with. You know, I always felt like, you know, switch definitely had its own sound, but I, for my ears, you know, if I have to like think of another band of the time that kind of had some similarities, you know, the ones I think of that come to mind are like a confunction and earth, wind and fire. So, and also the ability to, you know, be adept at the ballads and also at the up-tempo. And I think both of those groups also could do that. Yeah, I've heard the Earth, Wind and Fire comparison. I've never really heard the compunction. Uh, I think because I wasn't, I, I remember them being like a big band that 
had a lot of horns and stuff. Is that true? I'm trying to remember uh, the compunction, but I never really heard that comparison. I heard the Earth, Wind, and Fire comparison uh, quite a bit. Um, yeah. Yeah, I heard that. And uh, I don't know, that Earth, Wind, Fire. Woof. <laughs> now that's a compliment. <laughs> Did you guys ever go out with them? Uh, at the Flashers, uh, we played a couple times. Oh, one of the TNT Flashers, we played with them a couple times. But with Switch, we never had a chance to play with them. But mm-hmm. the Flashers, we did. We did. So when you were looking to have, you know, the the persona, if you will, of Switch, the identity of Switch, you know, you guys hit it so big with a ballad. You know, how did you feel about how you wanted the group to get over and be perceived in terms of, you know, a love you said the love and the funk tour so in terms of you know more of like the love side or more of the funk r&b side or just a real balance of both uh my feeling is a little bit different than maybe others um because i remember uh i guess there was some actors that they said they didn't want to be typecast uh you know it's coming up in their careers if you will um Myself personally, I felt that whatever this, whatever's working, that's what you work. And I wasn't a big fan of getting off of that. I, I obviously being a drummer, I love the beat and, and all that, but our success was ballads. And I, I myself personally love to ride that gravy train all the way because that was it. You know how tough it is to break through. And you break through on this style and this genre and the way you are and the way you look, the way you sound. Why would you want to change that? And so that's just me. Now, other people, yeah, you want to grow. Well, you could grow still in that area. But um, Best Beat in Town, uh, We Like to Party was really a, a nice hit uh, song, too, uh, at the beginning. But I, I, I just love that. Philip Bobby bounce back and forth uh sound. I love that sound. I want to be closer because you know, because you don't get too much of it. You get some of Philip, you get some of Bobby, and uh yeah, I I would ride that till you can't ride it no more. <laughs> That's just how I feel. Well, you mentioned L.A. was a little slow in the uptake initially, but once it did hit in L.A., you know, which is where I'm from, you know, I mean, it was played incredibly often. I mean, it was huge once it got over. Agreed. Agreed. It was all over the radio. And um, it, it took a while because, like I said, now I understand the business. It broke out in the South. But, man, you're right. It was all over. We had a wonderful uh, autograph session at Freeway Records, Freeway Records, kind of a tongue, tongue twister. And it was the Temptations was there, Rick James was there, uh, we were there. Uh, I don't think of someone else, but they really appreciated uh, Switch over there. And that was really a fun uh, little thing we had going there that, at Freeway Records. Um, that was that was uh, LA's finest, man. It was awesome. How would you describe the, the the chemistry and interaction of the band? You know, in those first couple through those first couple of records, 
the first couple of records, the, the, the chemistry was, uh, um, it was, it was real. It was, it was real. It was, uh, everybody kind of, the first record was everybody trying to feel their way through and see, because there was other producers at Motown that was, uh, submitting songs as well. So there was, it was coming from all areas. So we were, we were, our continuity was good. We had, uh, Jermaine was involved a lot with our development. So the chemistry was real good. And I think that Jermaine was that glue that kind of held us together uh, throughout the first couple, really the first one and the second one. But then after the second one, uh, maybe uh, there was less Jermaine and and, and it kind of like was starting to, you know, everybody do their thing, so to speak. Everybody's a writer. Everyone wants to be a producer. Everyone wants to, you know, it got it to that. What was it? A lot of um, conflict or tension in, in choosing the material, you know, because I know you had some, you know, composing and, and production credits too, but it was, you know, a lot of different people shared in that. No, I don't, I don't you know, it's funny, uh, the conflict. No, I don't say it was, no, it wasn't a conflict at all. It's just that everyone had their, they were getting involved in a lot of personal things. But when we got together, we were, I always felt we were really super tight together. And uh, we got along really good. We worked together uh, very well. Um, so no, as far as a group and a continuity, it was always there uh, throughout. That, that's how I felt. Yeah. But personal lives everybody started having a lot of personal stuff going on but when we got together we were together once you uh hit it and made it uh did you ever cross paths with with barry white did he uh maybe regret letting you guys go all right there's a story there we were doing how jackson talented teen uh, TV show. That was our first TV appearance. And uh, at the time, we hadn't had our release yet, but uh, we were going to release I Want to Be With You. That was going to be our first release. It wasn't They'll Never Be. But anyway, uh, Jermaine's our manager. But guess who's Jermaine's one of his best friends was? Barry White. Now, Barry never came around us, so I don't even know if he even knew who we were or whatever, right? But he so happened to come to the Hal Jackson Talented Teen uh, show. And he come into the dressing room, <laughs> and he just shook his head and he said, I just didn't have the patience. <laughs> Those are the words that came out of his mouth. <laughs> he just didn't have the patience. It was the same because it was Greg, Bobby. And myself, us three, was from the White Heat. And those is his words. So, yeah, we ran into him. That's that one time. And he remembered you guys. What? I said he remembered you guys. Yeah, of course he did. Yeah. Of course yeah. he did. Yeah. He, he, that's what he said to us when he saw us. Yeah. He said, yeah, I, uh, I just didn't have the patience. A uh, quite a different, uh, you know, spin of attitude than it was when he first met us. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> it was a complete different turnaround. But but I don't have anything bad to say about him because he did look out for us. When the whole time we were there with him, Barry looked out for us. He did. Well, you know what I mean? I've he's come up many times in the course of this show, and I've only heard, you know, for the most part, good stuff on Barry White. So that's right. That's right. Um, who determined, you said, you know, that the band was kind of lacking a leader, you know, when you early on, um, how did you rally around a unified vision, you know, for what the image of the band would be in terms of, you know, attire and the show that you would put on and those kinds of things. That was Motown. Motown had that because we, I remember when they uh, sent us on a shopping spree to go buy stuff because we had our the original album cover never was released. Uh, we had a, we had our own personal clothes. We always we dressed up though, kind of, but not in suits and stuff. But we, you know, we we weren't one of those uh, part of the funkadelic type dressing groups. So we kind of dressed up, and uh, that album cover never was released. Because what happened was somewhere along the line, behind the scenes, they said, oh, we need to redo this. And that's when they sent us down there, uh, I remember, in Beverly Hills, to go shopping to pick out clothes. So the clothes that we had on the very first album cover, Motown bought all that stuff for us. And so next thing we know, we saw the album cover and it was uh, pretty mind-blowing because we didn't have any clue it was going to be like that. That was totally Motown. Mm. And then you just followed with that because it was working. It, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And you probably ended up being about the sharpest dressed on a lot of those uh, tours that you guys did. Yeah, we, uh, I, that's what I like about the group. And they're still that way too. We never always like to just look our best, you know, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Sometimes you wonder why anyone wouldn't want to do that, but everybody's to to each his own, so to speak. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.